Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast. This is your home for shared stories of hope, perseverance, will, and inspiration. Join us today as we share another story that brings to life the underlying beat of our lives. Consider us your virtual friends. Let's get inspired. Welcome to the Will Within Podcast, and I'm your host, Regina Pontus. Today, I get the opportunity to bring to you a conversation I had with a woman by the name of Conchita Sarnov. She's the author of a book called Trafficking, The Jeffrey Epstein Story. She goes into that in great detail. We talk about that. She is the executive director of the Alliance to Rescue Victims of Trafficking at Georgetown University. She's a senior fellow there. She's also an amazing woman when she works with the UN as well. She's one of the women of the UN. Without any further ado, I'll bring the conversation with her, but keep in mind also when you listen, about 17 minutes in, we talk about a gentleman by the name of Jean-Luc Brunel. He is the owner of the modeling agency called MC Squared, which Epstein helped fund and Two days after we had our conversation, he was actually found to have committed suicide. So he was, quote, suicided. So keep that in mind. Welcome, Conchita Sarnoff. I'm so happy that you agreed to talk to me. This is such an overwhelming topic that people can't even wrap their heads around this. This is more of a global spiritual issue with this human trafficking and child sex trafficking it's it's bigger than bipartisan issue, although politics doesn't play a big part. So I really do want to talk to you about that. I'm so happy you agreed to talk to me. And I just want to start out, let's get a background of who is Conchita, how did you grow up, and uh, your religious background, and how spiritually you were developed, and if that has played a part in what you're doing, et cetera. So I'll let you talk. Well, Regina, thank you very much. It's it's a pleasure to be on your show, and uh, thank you for all the extraordinary work that you do uh, on behalf of so many people who need you. So uh, thank you. I'm very grateful. 
Well, I'm a Cuban American. I grew up in Madrid during my early years, and then my family, uh, both my parents are Cuban, and they, of course, they left Cuba because of the revolution, the 1959 revolution. And then after Madrid, we went to the United States, um, and I grew up most of my, certainly my uh, junior high childhood, my older childhood, teen years, in uh, Miami, I went to the School of the Sacred Heart, uh, which is perhaps where I really was given, well, I went to the Sacred Heart all 18 years since Montessori. So in Spain and in Florida, I think that's where, uh, that's, that is where I received my religious education. We, you, at the time, we used to go to mass every single day and of course, you know, it was quite different. Uh, the order um, was, was quite different than what it is today. But, you know, I perhaps be, for personal reasons, because of experiences that I've had, I've always believed, and also because I come from an interfaith parents. My mother was uh, Jewish, even though she converted to Catholicism when she married my father, and my father was Catholic. So I've always, religion has always interested me. I have uh, many Muslim friends. I have many Jewish friends. I have many Christian friends. And, you know, to me, uh, it's much more about God and what we do here on earth uh, to help others than being any one religion. I mean, mm -hmm. um, it doesn't matter what religion you are, uh, as long as you are good and help others in their quest in this uh, difficult life. You're grounded in a faith that that are a belief that uh, you are part of the human existence and yes, you exactly. Want to and like everyone else, you know, I'm here struggling and uh, uh, trying to make um, my life and others uh, other lives better. That's all. Mm -hmm. But moving on, uh, I then went to Columbia University uh, in New York and I studied political science and and history and Latin American history. I was going to law school, but I uh, deviated. And uh, I met my first husband and we married and I had children. And so that was that. And then I actually did not come to this field of human trafficking until much later in my life. Um, in fact, I my first job was in London with CNN at their first foreign bureau. And then it was 2006, and I was in Mexico. I was actually advising an American economist, Alan Stoga, and he sent me to Mexico to help him with a communications issue for one of his clients, Semex, which is the second largest cement company in the world. And it was while I was working there on that project that I came across uh, the issue of human trafficking. Uh, the foreign minister, former foreign minister, Jorge Castañeda, um, we were at a dinner. Um, it was a sort of semi-government dinner. And he said to me something that shocked me at the time. And he, I'll never forget. He said, you Americans are a bunch of hypocrites. You sell us illegal weapons. You buy our drugs. And now you're stealing our children." So when he said the stealing of the children, that's mm. what stopped me dead on dead in my tracks. Mm. And I said to him, you know, uh, 
minister, I, I, I would like to know what you mean by that. The next morning he came to pick me up at my hotel and he took me to an orphanage called Casitas del Sur, which is a, um, an, which was an orphanage in the north of Mexico City. 11 children had been trafficked. The youngest was a little boy. Uh, I think he was age 10, if I'm not mistaken. And I spoke to his mother and his mother was in tears because she knew she had been told. This orphanage basically was quasi-government connected when parents, uh, well, when parents who did not have the means to support their children were in the process of a divorce, the state would take the children and many of these children would go to this particular orphanage. Two journalists were killed investigating this story. So that intrigued me immediately. So that's where I started. And that investigation led me to another investigation and to another. And then I eventually in 2009 stumbled into the Jeffrey Epstein case. And of course, the reason that that happened was because I was tracking a Mexican case that was completely unassociated with the Epstein case, but I tracked that case back to Palm Beach. And I realized that a lot of the cartels, for some reason, were trafficking children into the Palm Beach area. There was a huge FBI raid, 150 homes off Lake Avenue uh, on West Palm Beach. And I remember that at that raid, there were about, I don't know, 75 children that were actually saved by the FBI. And so one of those traffickers, I ended up interviewing in jail with his lawyer, with his attorney. And it was through that case that I ended up stumbling into the Epstein trafficking case. Incredible. Can I question? Can yes. I, I just want to clarify, you said CNN at one point, but you're not really a journalist. You were working. No, no, no. I was in sales. Yeah. No, I was. In, I was not in journalism. I was working at CNN. I was working for the chief of bureau, and it was the first time that CNN actually they were trying to sell the hotel chain. I mean, CNN was. I remember my ex-husband used to call it the Chicken Noodle Network. <laughs> they were nothing, right? Yeah. Uh, compared to NBC, of course. And so um, they were just they were just a startup, and they were trying at the time when I worked at CNN. Their uh, goal, their objective, was to sell CNN to all large hotel chains, European hotel chains, and government, because if the governments and the hotels yeah. would yeah. buy CNN, that was it. You know, so everything. So that's how you came to meet that gentleman who made that comment. I'm just trying to get uh, the. Oh no 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 that no no I met I met the foreign minister through a mutual friend. Oh, elsewhere. okay. Right, Nothing sorry. to do with CNN. All no, right, I'm no. sorry, I got confused there. No, sorry. It, it was here. It's okay. No, it's okay. okay. So, um, anyway, so back. Wait, where was I? So the so the um, so when I stumbled into the Epstein case in 2009, you know, I started to investigate. It was actually, I didn't speak to Jeffrey until 2010 because a friend of mine who was hospitalized at the time said to who also knew him because she was his neighbor in Palm Beach said to me do you know that Jeff is in jail I had no idea at the time this is 2010 forgive me I not 2009 2010 
And so um, I said to her, what do you mean he's in jail? I assumed that he hadn't paid taxes. That was my, you know, that's yeah, what I thought. Right. And then she, she said, no, 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 he's, um, he's, he's in jail for soliciting prostitution from a minor, from little girls. And it was so shocking to me because I had seen Jeffrey the last time in 2005, uh, January. Um, he had spent New Year's Eve at a, at a friend of ours home. And he had been there with Glenn that night. And I saw him, we were talking and, and then he had invited me to breakfast at his home. I couldn't go the next day, January 1st. And then I went with a friend of mine, I think it was two weeks later or a week later. That was the last time I saw him, January, 2005. And of course, you know, our lives had taken different routes and I, I just hadn't seen him. So in 2010, I had no idea. And I, at the time I, I never read the Palm Beach Post and I didn't read the Palm Beach Daily News either. So I Googled him when she told me that he was in jail. And sure enough, there were three very short articles, you know, maybe quarter, 500 words. And they just said, Jeffrey Epstein, resident of Palm Beach, arrested on these charges. That was it. I found that so strange. I thought a man like Jeffrey to have been arrested and serving time on a solicitation of prostitution, it didn't make sense to me. It just did not make sense, especially because I knew he and Glenn Maxwell were a couple mm -hmm. or had been a couple anyway. So anyway, I... Um, I don't know what possessed me because <laughs> I had never done it before and I certainly have never done it again. I went to the police station and I purchased his files and that was it. You know, I sat down on a park bench. I knew I was going to call him and I was going to call Glenn, but before I did that, I needed to read everything that was stated in a police report and in the arrest records. So I read the files several times over. I knew this was the mother load. I knew this was the biggest human trafficking case of the 20th century. Why? Because I was able immediately to see that this case went from Palm Beach to Wall Street, to the White House, to Buckingham Palace. Mm -hmm. And you connected and, it to what that guy said before. Well, and yeah, of, I, course. of course, and then I thought to myself, and the strangest thing is that the very first question when I called Jeffrey, at, he was under house arrest. He had just left prison. This was in July of 2010. When I first called him, I, the first question was, Jeff, have you heard anything about Mexican cartels trafficking children into Palm Beach and in to the Palm Beach area? He said, absolutely not. I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, all of this, of course, is on record and recorded because the first thing he said to me when I called him was to be careful what I said to him because the FBI was taping all our conversations. So I know that everything I have said to him and everything he said to me is on file and the FBI have those records. Mm. Anyway, so that's how it started. I had a two-week conversation with him pretty much consistently every day until my editor at the time, Tina Brown, because I took this story when, when he and I started to speak 
And I realized immediately that he was not telling me the truth. And then I spoke to Ghislaine uh, Maxwell and she just told me that the whole thing was ridiculous. And I said to her, get yourself a very good lawyer, Ghislaine, because this, this does not augur well. I did not believe at the time that Ghislaine could have ever perpetrated any of those crimes. I just couldn't because I knew her and I had maybe because, you know, I liked her. I, she's a very clever woman, well-educated, sophisticated, mm -hmm. funny, very witty. And, you know, I, I don't know. I just didn't believe that she was, that she could have done that. And, and of course, I also did not know that she was bisexual. Another reason perhaps why. why Can I ask I, you a question? When, first of all, I think this whole thing is a miscarriage of justice because it wasn't just prostitution. It was trafficking. It was actually yes. anything under any child 14 is the rape of the of the child. But that's beside the point. There was a thing that you talked about in another podcast about he had invested a million dollars in MC squared, which was a modeling thing. Now, was that done before uh, this whole situation? Because that that makes it a whole global perspective and kind of fits in with the Mexican comments as well. Absolutely. In fact, one of the first things that I read in that police report was that these girls were being lured to come to him because he was promising them and Ghislaine Maxwell was promising them jobs at MC Squared and Victoria's Secret. Oh, with the guy that the, the Lexi Lex Wexner, who owns owned Victoria's Secret. Well, he probably still owns it, but he's no longer the chair. He was, you know, uh, ousted by the yeah, board right. of his company. And, and those and, girls were coming from Russia and the Ukraine. Unbelievable. Everywhere. No, no, Ukraine. they were coming everywhere. Uh, Regina, oh. the girls came from every. The only, the only girls who did not, who Epstein did not. Uh, solicit were African-American girls and dark-skinned girls, either oh. dark-skinned Latina girls or um, he, he, you know, and there is a deposition there that states exactly what wow. he explains how he, he, you know, he gives a, he has a criteria mm -hmm. of what he wants and, and he tells the women what to look for. And he says that. You know, he's very explicit. So um, those are the only girls who, thank God, saved themselves. Everybody else, mm -hmm. nobody else saved themselves. Anyway, to go back, Epstein uses MC Squared. In, in 2005, September 2005, he invests a million dollars. And Jean-Luc Brunel had, in fact, he's in jail today. He's in uh, Paris prison awaiting trial. And for sex trafficking of children. And Brunel had a very bad reputation when Epstein invested the million dollars. I mean, and anybody, if you spoke to anybody in the fashion industry, they would tell you he actually had to leave Paris. His brother told him that if he didn't leave Paris, there would be severe repercussions. And any, any modeling scout worth his weight in salt would tell you what a horrible reputation Brunel had. Uh, not only was he a doing a lot of drugs, but mm -hmm. also giving young girls drugs and oh, all sorts of horrible things. So these and, over 100 girls that Epstein and, uh, ended up abusing, they were a combination of both the girls about the modeling and then the under underprivileged girls that were in 
Florida, right? Well, they were all underprivileged. You know, I yeah, Epstein never targeted a young girl who whose family had means. Never. So now that we've come to that conclusion, how many women have come forward? And are you mm. talking to them? Many. Or have you talked well, to them? No, no, no. I've I've spoken to dozens dozens of victims of Epstein's victims. Early on, uh, I spoke to them. In fact, the first girl who opened up the Epstein case, I, w- I am the only one who was allowed, who interviewed her. And you could see that on the Daily Beast in a, um, in a January 2015, my last expose for the Daily Beast of, of that six-part series. And even though we covered her face, and of course, I never state their name or release their identity, she was the very first girl. She was a lovely little girl, 14 years old. And in fact, she was going to a school for children with emotional needs. She was not well. And for him to have abused this girl who was clearly, even at the age of, I think it was 21 or two when I interviewed her, you could tell this girl was so fragile mm-hmm. and just she was like you know a little rose and I thought good god one must be very sick to abuse someone like this so I I interviewed her I interviewed many other girls many girls I've never unlike any other journalist ever released any names I always call them by the by the uh, name on the court document Mm -hmm. which is either a Jane Doe one or whatever they they call themselves I did, however, release one victim's name, Virginia Jufre, because mm-hmm. she sold her, you know, she sold, sold her story to the Daily Mail and she exposed her name. And so I, I released her name as well. But why, after. Why you do know, you think that Ghislaine, her trial was just so quick, it was so under the radar? I mean, as you said, this involved politics. It didn't, it was bipartisan. That's uh, why. <laughs> in the Bush administration and everything. And, the, and the, not the Vatican, the Vatican something different, but uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, in terms of the palace in, in, in London, why did she not utilize the information she had to finally expose us to try to get everything out from under the rug and, and do justice for herself? Or is she, do you think that she's this little black book that everybody always talked about, that, that there was a guy that um, actually tried to sell it, but uh, the FBI already had it. The guy that was the, the butler, I think. Yes. He he tried to sell it and to them, and they said, well, basically, we already have it, and he was in, went to jail for that. Why do you think she hasn't utilized the information that she has? Look, first of all, as you and I know, Epstein didn't make it in jail, right? Right. I had a phone call from an active federal agent a few days after he was arrested in July. 2019. And the active agent at the FBI in New York said to me, Conchita, he, Epstein is not going to make it to trial. This is a quote. There are towels on the inside. I didn't quite understand what he meant by that because Mm -hmm. I'm not an agent and I, you know, I I don't speak that. That's not my vocabulary. So I asked him, what do you mean? And he said, figure it out, but he's not going to make it to trial. Well, sure enough, I I told the Washington Post, I told the senior editor at the Post, 
and I told Politico, and then I told one of my closest friends. And I told them this in order to basically protect myself because I did not want to hold that secret yeah, by myself. Yeah. I thought, no, no, I, I don't want to be the holder smart, of this. smart move. So I emailed it to them. I actually emailed it. And the Washington Post, the senior editor wrote me a letter when he was, you know, when they allegedly he committed suicide. He wrote me an email um, saying just that. So I believe that Ghislaine has done the same thing because I also believe and as you know, she just allowed the release of the document where Virginia Dufresne claims that she was raped by eight powerful men. So the judge has now promised to release the names of those eight powerful men because Ghislaine Maxwell now has allowed for that release. We haven't seen the names yet. We know a few already. But the thing is, will Ghislaine, she's now, of course, appealing her conviction, but more importantly, or equally as important, she will also, she is asking for a mistrial because as you know, one juror for certain, juror number 50, he did not tell the truth, I, neither in the jury application nor during voir dire. And there are three other jurors who also, according to the New York Times and other media reports, also forgot to say that they were sexually abused. But the, the number one juror who probably, you know, this case is hanging on is number 50. Mm -hmm. So if there is a mistrial, if the judge deems that there should be a new trial and the document is released with those eight so-called powerful names of men, do you think Ghislaine is going to make it in jail? Yes. I, I'm speechless, to be honest with you. Just trying to think of all the names and how powerful, how, how global this total scheme is. It's, it's just it's such a spiritual battle. There, it you is know? a spiritual battle. And there's, and you know, Epstein and Ghislaine did not traffic these girls to make money. That, that's, Epstein didn't need to make money or did not make money from the girls. He did something quite different. He trafficked the girls for something completely different. Power. That is to blackmail mm -hmm. and to protect himself mm -hmm. because he took pictures of every, I think of the same way that Virginia Dupre showed that picture of her and Prince Andrew. You don't think that the FBI, when they raided his private island home two days after he died, unnecessarily because he was dead already, right? So why mm -hmm. did they need to raid his home? There, there was no need for that particular raid. And the raid that occurred on July 6th when he was arrested in New York, all those pictures that he had with girls, that he told to service these powerful men. The federal government has that. They know who they are. Mm -hmm. And me, those men know who they are. So you know, it's true. It's true. Let me ask you, why do you think you were turned down by 27 different publishers? Mm. The wrong time. It was during the wrong administration. Um, when I presented my book 
after I published a, a few of the articles of the Daily Beast articles that were part of that six part series, the president at the time was President Obama. The Secretary of State was Hillary Clinton. One of the men who has been implicated from the very beginning is Bill Clinton, former President Clinton. Virginia Giuffre implicated Clinton in several of her depositions. And as and I have letters from many of those publishers who said, number one, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State. Number two, lawsuit libel by Jeffrey Epstein. Three, she was going to run for president the moment that President Obama would cease to be president of the United States. So I can assure you that if the Miami Herald had tried to report what I reported in 2010, they would have come across the same issue. If that reporter would have, would have tried to sell her book in 2010, she would have stumbled into the same issue, which mm -hmm. is wrong administration. So when President Trump became president, and as you know, certainly the media and the news organizations, most of them did disliked him. They thought this is it. This is the time to expose, re-expose the case. And also because as Attorney General then, uh, William Barr said to me, uh, Mr. Barr, as you know, worked for Kirkland Ellis. And most of the attorneys who represented Epstein, Kenneth Starr, Jay Lefkowitz, were friends, were, excuse me, worked for Kirkland Ellis. And in fact, Alex Acosta, labor secretary, prosecutor who prosecuted mm -hmm. Epstein, also worked at Kirkland Ellis and worked with Kenneth Starr, which is why Kenneth Starr was hired, to influence Acosta not to heavily prosecute Epstein. And, you know, Acosta, what he did was he basically put his foot down, even though he should not have given him such a lenient non-prosecution agreement. But he said, no, Epstein must have jail, jail time, must pay restitution to victims, and must become a registered sex offender. Later, the Manhattan DA, Cyrus Vance Jr., refused to allow ju Judge Ruth Pickles, who was registering Epstein in New York, to register Epstein as a level three, the most dangerous category of registration. He fought for Epstein to be registered as a level one and he appealed, of course he lost on appeal. And so Epstein was a registered level three offender. But what I'm trying to say is that this case became so political. Why was it so political? It was a slam dunk case. I mean, at the very beginning, the first conversation that the state attorney has with the Palm Beach chief of police, Michael Ritter, the state attorney is Barry Kersher. He says, no problem. This, this is slam dunk. This guy is going to jail. That was the first conversation he had with the chief of police. The next conversation was, no, this is a misdemeanor. Hmm. How does that happen? Unless politics comes into play yeah. and some big, heavy hitters and big attorneys, Jay, you know, again, 
Alan Dershowitz, he was advising. Professor Dershowitz is an extraordinary attorney. Mm-hmm. Kenneth Starr, another extraordinary attorney. Jay Lefkowitz, another extraordinary attorney. I mean, Martin Weinberger, I can go on and on. Yeah, it's overwhelming. There are all these people that were involved in this. And you know what's interesting now is the fact that within the last year, uh, because of the the illegal immigration issue, they say that there's been 2 million people within the last year only that have come over. And the majority of them, well over 50%, are women that they know to be abused and trafficked. And they're not even stopping that situation from well, happening. Take, you know, Regina, let's take this back a few years. During the Obama administration, under DACA, under the pretense of DACA, not under DACA, but under the pretense of DACA, 83,000 children crossed the border into the United States. Where are those children? Mm. They have not been found. Many of them were trafficked. I had I went down to the border. I went and risked my life and almost got killed in Impala, California, in the middle of the day. And thank God the sheriff found me. I didn't know where I was. I was lost. He said, what are you doing? This is the this is the highway where all the drugs are, you know, come in across our border in San Diego. Well, it's not San Diego. It's south of San Diego. Mm-hmm. It's where Calexico and Impala, California, cross the border. Yeah. And he personally took me, drove me away from the area. And then I went, I met a border patrol officer that I had a meeting with, and he took me to a laundromat, a public laundromat. And in the dryer were 10 little children hiding in a dryer, hiding inside a, an enormous dryer. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, how does that happen in our country? Why? It's not, why is this happening in our country? When I think about it, and now you're hearing stories of the government sending people in the dead of night to different states. These before, there was like, oh, the border states that had the issues. Now, they're just being sent all over the country. All over. Well, again. No, no. Then, too, because I, I was there when the Border Patrol put the children with, some of them had their mothers with them. Others came unaccompanied and were were given to you know uh, caretakers. They were placed on the bus. Some of them went to North Carolina, others went to South Carolina. They were spread across the country. And you know, how do we know what happened to children into our country? I was so intrigued by not intrigued. That's not the right word. I was horrified when Mitzi. Purdue, my conversation with her, we got onto the subject of human trafficking because that's what she was focusing on as a a way to gain money to stop that situation happening. And she said to me off the cuff, she said, Regina, the United States is the worst offender in the world. And all of it, I was mortified. We are number one. We have the largest number of predators in the world. Not in the world bigger than China, mm-hmm. Russia, India, and and look at their populations. Mm-hmm. You know the children are trafficked into the U.S. You know why? Because we have the largest 
pornography, child pornography industry in the world. We have the largest number of pedophiles. Okay, mm -hmm. so we need to get to the root of that problem. Why do we have so many pedophiles? Why do we have pedophile networks bigger than any other country? China is importing their children to us. Russia is importing their children to us. Latin America, India, Africa. Why? I don't know. We need to we need to study this. We need we need to figure out why is why that is happening. Because, like I said to you at the very beginning of this, this is a spiritual battle. Yes. So, and and look at what the Catholic Church is. And I'm Catholic. I mean, I was a real Catholic. Um, well, uh, look at what the church is going through right now. Pope Benedict. All together. It all I comes mean, together. Of course. Because look at what McCarrick did with bringing those seminarians, et cetera, up to um, up to the uh, seminary up here in New Jersey, I believe it was, or Connecticut. Uh, look, it's, I, just, I, it's just horrifying. We need, I am not in favor of capital punishment. I, I think that God is the only one who can take someone's life. We, we should not take other people's lives. However, however, we need to enforce stringent prosecution, be it through medication, treatment to treat pedophiles and sex offenders, and they do it in, in Sweden. In fact, the Karolinska Institute um, and Sweden, if you are a pedophile, you go on treatment. The Karolinska Institute has found that there are testosterone blockers. It's a medication. It's basically given to patients who have prostate cancer in late stage three or four. Um, and when I raised this issue with a former U.S. attorney, I said to him, why is it that our prison system will not enact this type of treatment? Because, you know, the rate of recidivism in sex offenders is 90%. In fact, when Epstein was arrested a second time, judge, the judge who um, at his arraignment uh, and at his bail hearing said to him, Mr. Epstein, the rate of recidivism is 90% and it usually takes 10 to 15 years after because one of the defense uh, statements made by Epstein's attorney was that Epstein had not offended in 10 years. And so the judge said, well, the rate of recidivism is such and such, and it usually takes an offender 10 to 15 mm -hmm. years mm -hmm. to reoffend. So no, you cannot, you know, yeah, I didn't want to bail. Yeah. Wow. So we should do that. Why? Do, we should do that. We should, you know, I'm not uh, the the U.S. the attorney who the U.S. attorney who 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 spoke with me said, you know, that's considered chemical castration. I said, well, it's not. Well, is it chemical castration? Yes, I suppose it is because it blocks the testosterone in males, so they don't have that click. Because when I interviewed uh, several pedophiles, the one thing that I learned about the pedophiles is that. They cannot control it. Many of them actually wish to be able to, you know, they, they wish for castration because it's a click. Uh, this is what I remember, that they have a click 
that happens at any time. And when that click comes on, they need to offend. So if that is the chemical reaction, then we need to stop that chemical reaction. So testosterone blockers, we should really think about that. The, the Bureau of Prisons should think about that. Talk about um, your Alliance to Rescue Victims of Trafficking and it's www.atrvt.org. Yes. Tell me about that. How did you start that? And, and it was well, because of all this research that you yes, started. Yes, I, I realized after I wrote the Epstein book and I thought, you know, this book is not enough. I mean, I wanted to to raise awareness of human trafficking on a global scale. I, and, and then I, because I interviewed so many victims, I was in California when I, when I started the organization. And I, had, I was speaking to a lot of friends in, in Washington at the time and uh, like-minded colleagues. And I thought, you know, what is it that these girls need? And the more I spoke to victims and the more I learned about uh, what happens after they're rescued, the more I, I realized they need safe places to go. There were no safe houses. In fact, we still don't have safe houses. We, I mean, there are across the country, but very few. And they have very, very stringent regulations and restrictions. And it's very difficult to maintain a safe house. Governments don't want to fund bricks and mortar. They fund, HHS funds a lot of programs. There are nine federal agencies now that work together, not enough, but they do work together to provide services for victims. This is something that I've worked, you know, for, uh, for the last decade. I still haven't been able to raise the money to open one safe house in Washington. And I say to myself, why on earth is that? I can tell you what HHS told me when I met with them years ago, they said, it is not cost effective. Wow. A person who I will not name top tier at HHS said to me, it is not cost effective to open a safe house for 10 trafficked kids. A, you have to divide them by gender and B, you must divide them by age because a girl who's trafficked at 15 goes through a lot more than a girl who is trafficked at eight. What so, about working with Catholic charities, for instance? Well, I've tried. Because it, they get a third of their revenue, the USCCB gets a third of their revenue from the government to deal with yes. illegal immigrants. So yes. if they use that as a, as a means to get in. They're willing to pay for these bishops to use that money for what their practices are. Let them, if they really believe in helping the underprivileged that they say they do, then let them do something like that. Well, I think you're absolutely right. In fact, when the pedophile scandal broke by the Boston Globe, um, I remember I reached out to a priest, friend of, friend of mine, and I said, you know, this is the perfect opportunity to be able to basically give back and to show that all Catholic priests and, all, and, and Catholics in general are not evil, wicked people. So why don't you invest in opening safe houses and have the nuns run these safe houses for children? Mm -hmm. yeah, great idea. Have... Do you know of a woman by the name of Elizabeth Yor? You would no. find her fascinating. She is 
She used to be a consultant dealing with um, child trafficking with Oprah Winfrey and her organization, Harpo, when especially for the the child's the school, the girls' school over in South Africa. And oh yes, she yes. has, and she's also a lawyer, and she's worked with the with the government in Illinois, I believe, is where she is. She works for the government in Illinois. Mm-hmm. So she has a thing called Your Children. It's www.your, and it's her last name, www.yore.com. And I told me to give her as well, and mm-hmm. we could try to make a connection between you guys. Because mm-hmm. there are ways around to doing this. Oh, we don't want to pay for this, AMHHS. They'll pay for it one way or another through the yes. Catholic bishops or, or, or whatever. We're going to have two generations, not one, because I've been at this for 15 years. So that's almost one generation. So we're going to have two generations of children who do not know how to read, write, add, subtract, divide, because the one thing that children who are trafficked do not do is go to school. Mm-hmm. They do not attend school. So what is going to happen to that generation of trafficked children? There are over 1 million trafficked children just in the United States alone. So what's going to happen to that 1 million children who cannot read and write, who cannot do math? How are they going to work when they Mm -hmm. get out of this, you know, sex business, Mm -hmm. which most of them want to, many of them end up sadly becoming going into prostitution because they don't know how to do anything else and they don't want to be made and also because there's a lot of money in prostitution you know they can make whatever whatever an hour versus working for mcdonald's uh for the minimum wage look at this crazy only fans now or whatever it's called these girls are basically with the internet it's the new form of basic prostitution of selling yourself out to the, these girls make loads of money just to expose absolutely. themselves online. Absolutely. In fact, you know, I met a victim. Uh, she was 17 at the time. I met her as a woman. But I said to her, what, she was a beautiful woman. She had two children. She had, she had married and then had two children and then had gone back into prostitution. Hmm. Uh, and I said, why did you do this? I mean, with two children hasn't it been difficult? And she said, I don't know how to do anything else. I, you know, she didn't know how to do anything else. She couldn't get a job. She then had two children to support. She said it was easy money. Tell me about how people can contact you. And before we actually do that, uh, I wanted to know what is your mantra? My mantra? (laughs) Well, thank you, God. You know, to me, great gratitude is gratitude. I'm blessed in so many ways. Uh, Goodness. Uh, Even though I work in a very dark space, I hope that I'm shedding light into this dark space. I hope that I have been able to help the victims who have crossed my path in some way, even if it's a little way. I hope I've helped them. I hope I have been able to raise awareness of this issue enough so that women like you, we all join forces and, you know, we're warriors in a, in, in a spiritual war that 
I don't know if there's going to be an end, but you know, David did yes. succeed. He slayed Goliath, yes. And right. slayed Goliath. So in the end, truth prevails. I mean, I hate to God sound so out. cliche, but well, no, truth God wins is. out. That's the end of the story. Always. And you know, nothing nothing as powerful as God. Mm, that's right. So my mantra is gratitude. Thank you for all the blessings and for letting me be where I am right now mm -hmm. today. So tell how do people get in contact with you? Well, my email is csarnoff at atrvt.org. I am not on social media for security reasons. Good for you. Mm -hmm. I'm not well, that's great. Thank you so much for opening up and talking to me. You've been an inspiration in what you've done. You're Thank such a motivator. No. I look Thank forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you, Regina. Me too. And stay safe and healthy. And uh, we'll talk soon. And thank you for raising awareness of this very important issue. Thank you. Okay. God bless you. God bless. Thanks again to Conchita Sarnov for speaking with us. So just if you want to get in touch with Conchita, what an amazing story she has. It is C-S-A-R-N-O-F-F at A-T-R-V-T dot org. Again, that is C-S-A-R-N-O-F-F at A-T-R-V-T dot org. Next time we're going to be talking, we're going to be talking to a Vicar General for the Marians and the Immaculate Heart. And we're going to be talking about Divine Mercy and the Novena and all the blessings that are given to us for Divine Mercy Sunday, which is the week after Easter. So until next time, my Will Within family, be blessed.